the research was a little hard to interpret because of the possibility of it being a self-fulfilling prophecy, which is to say that if, do if, if docs think a patient's not likely to survive, then they're more likely to uh, engage in conversations about limiting life support, and thereby the patient will be less likely to survive. This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science, as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Doug Lay. And I'm Ryan Watkins. If you've ever been hospitalized, you've probably spoken with a doctor or nurse about their prognosis for your recovery. But just how accurate are these predictions? Today we're visited by Dr. Scott Halpern, an associate professor with the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. Scott is a medical doctor and a bioethics researcher. His research concerns improving the care of critically ill patients. In this episode, Scott tells us how he and his colleagues studied the accuracy of predictions made by doctors and nurses who work with ICU patients. This episode is sponsored by We Share Science. When researchers are curious about what is happening in science, they go to We Share Science to explore video abstracts uploaded by other researchers. You can search their vast catalog of video abstracts to learn about the latest scientific findings, or you can share your research with the world. Whether your research is in progress or already published at We Share Science, you can share your science and grow your impact. Explore the world's research at WeShareScience.org. Now, back to Parsing Science. Here's Scott Halpern. Uh, I grew up in North Jersey, right outside Manhattan. Went down to Duke for undergraduate, where I was a dual major in psychology and economics without necessarily realizing the setup that would give me for uh, my future work using behavioral economic principles to change healthcare choices among patients and clinicians, uh, which is a lot of the work that my group does now. From 96 to 2003, I did medical school and my PhD in epidemiology at Penn. Uh, when I was a resident, I remember my first six weeks of internship, I got assigned to work in the medical intensive care unit. Uh, I'd never stepped foot in an ICU before, uh, neither as a med student or, or as a patient or family member, thankfully, at the time, and found, though those six weeks were excruciating from a sleep deprivation standpoint, that they're also exhilarating from the standpoint of having the privilege to engage with patients and their families in their most stressful uh, moments. While end-of-life care is an issue that inevitably touches all of us in one form or another, few of us may be in a position to study it scientifically. So we wanted first to learn where the idea for Scott's project originated. So the genesis of this was uh, an idea that the first author had, Mike Detsky, who at the time, uh, Mike was applying uh, for research fellowships. He was already an ICU doctor at the University of Toronto. And we were fortunate enough to be able to put him on one of our NIH training grants. So early on, we sat down and uh, started talking about what has interested him 
most from the perspective of an ICU doc uh, and how that might set us up for some interesting research projects and settled on this idea of how important it is to be able to make prognostic judgments about critically ill patients and relay that information to patients and family members, but how little we know about our abilities to do that accurately. And furthermore, that many of us often refrain from providing prognostic judgments, which are really the cornerstone of of shared decision-making in the ICU, out of fear that we can't do it very well. The team decided to study ICU physicians and nurses' confidence in their predictions of patients' survival and quality of life. We asked Scott to tell us what kind of prior research had been done on the topic. This really hadn't been explored to any great extent. There had been some small studies looking at uh, physicians' abilities to predict whether patients will or will not survive the hospitalization. Uh, but that's a particularly uh, short-term outcome, uh, although it's one of great consequence. But And it's also one for which the research was a little hard to interpret because of the possibility of it being a self-fulfilling prophecy, which is to say that if, do- if, if docs think a patient's not likely to survive, then they're more likely to uh, engage in conversations about limiting life support, and thereby the patient will be less likely to survive. So it was hard to know really how accurate docs were about that uh, in and of itself, and, and sort of more importantly, we felt like the ways in which we really think clinically about patients in the ICU are in terms of uh, at least slightly, if not substantially, longer-term outcomes and not solely related to whether people will live or die, but what the qualities of their life will be like and their functional abilities. Mike deserves all the credit in the world for uh, not letting my initial pessimism dissuade him, (laughs) and he persevered, and, and after about 72 drafts of a protocol, uh, we finally had a project that we were enthusiastic about launching. The project gained the sustained participation of all but four of the 303 patients that were recruited, an almost unheard of rate of response. We asked Scott what criteria he and his team used to select and recruit participants. The types of patients that we were seeking to recruit were those who required at least some exposure to life support. And when we talk about life support in intensive care units, it it comes in a variety of flavors, if you will. But the most common is mechanical ventilation or a respirator uh, or breathing machine, colloquially. Uh, And most of the patients, in fact, uh, about 90%, of the patients who were enrolled uh, were on a ventilator for at least 48 hours. Um, The other way patients could get into the study is if they were on a different form of life support uh, called vasopressors, which are continuous intravenous infusions of medications that keep the blood pressure sufficiently high to sustain oxygen delivery to organs. We also required that patients have a 
uh, family member who would be able to participate because you know most of the patients who are on breathing machines are not able to interact and so we needed to understand their baseline characteristics such as you know what their functional capacities were prior to the ICU so as to uh, promote a second aim of the study which was to evaluate how different uh, patients functional capacities are after ICU versus before and we chose these as markers of illness that was sufficiently severe such that no matter uh, where in the country or even the world such patients were, there'd be no ambiguity that these patients definitely needed to be in an intensive care unit, um, but was not so severe uh, that we would greatly limit the applicability of the results to only a small subset of critically ill patients. And then finally, we needed the docs and the nurses to do the predicting. So we decided that the attending physician and the primary bedside nurse were the two most logical. And so we wound up with about, uh, I think it was uh, about 50 docs and about 150 nurses uh, who were making predictions for patients in this study. So we recruited patients from five different ICUs, which of course was a more complex undertaking than had we simply recruited from a single ICU. Um, we couldn't recruit from all five simultaneously for reasons of staffing constraints. Uh, even with such a large and wonderful team, we still couldn't cover all five ICUs all hours of the day. Um, but we certainly didn't want to recruit from just one ICU anyway because it would have greatly limited the generalizability of the results. And we were able to, um, with the team that we had in place, uh, accrue those patients uh, over the course of about a year and then uh, followed all of them up for an additional six months so that uh, the total study duration was about a year and a half. Next, we asked Scott to summarize what he and his team found after collecting and analyzing their data. So what we found is that uh, ICU doctors and nurses are actually pretty good at predicting uh, who's going to live to six months and who's not, and in addition, who is likely to achieve some patient-centered outcomes by six months if they're still alive, namely getting back to the type of living situation or place of residence that they were in before the ICU, uh, and a variety of functional outcomes, such as whether they're able to ambulate 10 stairs independently, uh, take care of their own toileting needs by themselves, think clearly on most days and about most things, uh, and outcomes like that. We certainly found that these predictions are not perfect, but importantly, uh, we found that when docs and nurses were very confident about their predictions, their accuracy improved considerably compared to the predictions about which they were less confident, suggesting 
an internal regulatory mechanism by which clinicians are actually aware when they're likely to be right and, and less likely to be right. It's not just the confidence of the predictor, but the concordance of two predictors that can be determinative of how accurate our prognostic judgments are, which is to say that we interviewed docs and nurses for the same patient and often found that they didn't agree in their prognostic judgments for that patient. However, in the cases where they did agree, which was, you know, maybe about half the time, the accuracy of the prognoses was much greater than was obtained by either physicians or nurses in isolation. Then the last key finding uh, was that you could predict outcomes using typical approaches, such as plugging a variety of clinical variables into a statistical model that would generate a prediction, uh, but that when you added the DOCS predictions to that statistical model, the accuracy of that model was greatly improved upon, which is to say that uh, it's actually important to know what DOCS think, uh, not simply uh, to assume that a computer can do this sort of complex task better than a clinician could. Now the caveat is that there were a lot of patients about whom clinicians were not confident in their predictions uh, or were not concordant in their predictions and as you would expect the predictive accuracy for those patients was considerably less promising. Next Scott told us about the practical implications of his team's findings regarding ICU clinicians' predictions of their patients' mortality and morbidity. But I think the take-home here from the perspective of someone who takes care of uh, a really sick population of patients and their family members is that it's reassuring that when I think I really know what's going to happen, I probably do, and I can... Uh, then reveal that to patients or family members. And correspondingly, when I'm really not sure what's going to happen, I'm probably right there as well, that I'm not sure. And I don't need to, that, that I don't need to take that as a reason not to engage in communication with patients and family members, but instead I can reflect my own uncertainty. And use that as a platform for a useful shared decision-making process. The Journal of the American Medical Association accepts only about 3.5% of the research papers that are submitted to it each year. Since their study concerned one's confidence of predictions, we asked Scott to discuss his prediction about whether their manuscript would be accepted by the journal and how confident he was in that prediction. So early on, like I said, I had some skepticism about our ability to do this project in a rigorous fashion. Um, but much of that was assuaged by Mike and other colleagues, and the protocol really took shape nicely, such that I, by the time we launched the project, my thought was it may get into a decent journal if, and this was a huge if, we could 
achieve our target sample size, which we wound up doing, and if we could have a respectable follow-up rate such that we could be reasonably confident that the results were not a product of uh, missing data and biases associated with missing data. And I never in a million years thought we would achieve a six-month follow-up of 99% of patients who are so severely ill and family members who are bereaving so profoundly. So when we achieved that goal, or that metric, I should say, suddenly that's when the light bulbs started going off that, hey, you know, this actually has a shot at one of the highest impact journals uh, because the likelihood of the results being biased was so small. Um, and that's really what guided us to taking a chance at, at a journal like JAMA. Um, one, whenever one does that, you don't necessarily expect it to get in because of the acceptance rate. Uh, but it was that type of observation that at least gave us the confidence to try. The editors at JAMA were uh, very thoughtful in their reviews and in the feedback that they provided. They didn't ask for things that we thought were even remotely unreasonable in the revision process. It, it, it's always really nice to have the work recognized, particularly when it is the product of such great efforts by a wonderful team of trainees from the undergraduate and graduate levels and postdoctoral fellows uh, as well as faculty uh, who really you know gave a, a considerable amount of effort to, to making the study a success. Probably the most common uh, feedback we've gotten is that people are really excited to know at least have some benchmarks about how good clinicians are in this space, uh, that uh, those who spend at least part of their lives caring for critically ill patients, this has been a, a real question mark for them, um, something that uh, has comes up every day in the ICU and we've largely known nothing about. Uh, it, I've, I'm pleased to say that uh, a lot of people have commended us for not myopically focusing only on the docs, but also uh, including the nurses, uh, recognizing that critical care delivery is a multidisciplinary art and partially a science, uh, and that had we not included the nurses, uh, I think the results would have been a lot less informative, frankly, probably would not have gotten into JAMA. Having been published in such a prestigious journal, we were interested in learning what contributions Scott felt that his team's study makes to the field of end-of-life care and beyond. The whole field of end-of-life decision-making had been proceeding from a research perspective, uh, completely bereft from uh, the lessons learned over 50 years by psychologists and behavioral economists about how people make decisions and frame choices in the real world. And some of the 
foibles of human decision making and the potentially nefarious effects of heuristics and other cognitive biases that had really never been explored in the end of life space before. So it was a basically a story of um, a joint interest generated from a clinical uh, experience or set of clinical experiences uh, while recognizing a, a research opportunity there. You know, there are a lot of parallels between uh, the work we do on end-of-life care and how clinicians and patients make decisions and make predictions uh, and the work we do on using similar uh, heuristic strategies uh, and behavioral economic approaches to change other types of behavior like smoking cessation or decisions to participate in randomized trials. Uh, when people see something published by one of their colleagues that they might not have previously known anything about, but see parallels to the types of expertise that they have, that they're not shy about reaching out and saying, hey, what do you think about grabbing a cup of coffee and seeing whether we can you know, put our minds together and, and come up with something new here? And that's actually one of the things that makes coming to work at Penn such a pleasure every day. All told, 13 authors are credited in the team's article. All were named before Scott in the paper's byline, even though the project might not have happened without his leadership. We wondered what motivated this. Uh, if you read the uh, authorship line carefully, you'll note that there are uh, four consecutive authors who have bachelor's degrees after their names. And uh, I'm thrilled to report that that all four of them, uh, Aaron Delman, Anna Bueller, Saida Kent, and uh, Isabella Cifatelli, are uh, now all uh, pursuing medical school. And uh, their experience interacting with seriously ill patients and their family members in the context of this study uh, wasn't what got them into medicine, uh, or interested in medicine, I should say, but uh, I think was a formative experience uh, for them from both a clinical standpoint and, and of course, from a research standpoint. Uh, undoubtedly gave them lots of interesting things to discuss on the interview trail, and uh, I hope it was a really formative experience for them. Uh, it's fun to hear from them on occasion on, on how they're doing in med school. And, uh, and again, just hats off to Mike Detsky for corralling that team and, and leading it and, and organizing the many things that needed to be organized to get this study from soup to nuts. That was Scott Halpern. His article with Mike Detsky and multiple co-authors appeared in the May 2017 issue of the Journal of the American Medical Association. You'll find a link to their article on parsingscience.org, as well as other materials he discussed during the episode. Next time on Parsing Science, we'll be visited by Dr. Kimberly Rios of Ohio University. She'll talk with us about her research into how pervasive stereotypes, such as the belief that Christianity is incompatible with science, 
might be undone. We were uh, struck by how easy it was to induce this stereotype. So specifically, it seems as though the default perception, uh, well, among our participants, was to have this stereotype sort of in their heads and carrying around with them. We hope that you will join us again.